up, guys? Beyond the Party, episode five. Happy to be back. We had some computer issues the past few weeks, but everything's fixed now, and we're going to be implementing a lot of new things in the podcast, and we're just excited to keep going. Uh, this week, we have Manny Ferreros on. Welcome to the show, Manny. Welcome. Thanks for having me. How you doing? How was your weekend? Fantastic. I see you guys are ready to drink, so the day can only get better. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Alcohol, it always helps a little bit. <laughs> only a little bit, though. KP, how, how was your weekend? It was good. It was good. Um, Friday, we had DJ Smooth. Um, it's Mother's Day weekend. It was kind of slow start, but Saturday, we had um, Spin King during the day. It was a pretty good turnout, and Saturday was also kind of rainy, so mm-hmm. it brought in a good crowd. And then Saturday night, we had Brody Jenner, which was pretty cool. It's Kylie Jenner's yeah, brother, if right. you're wondering. I, I know. <laughs> but it was cool. It was good music. Um, Saturday was definitely a bit uh, busier crowd, more bottle service, but it was fun. Yeah, that, you do that's weekend? awesome. Um, I had – it was great. <laughs> I had J.D. McGillicuddy's on Friday up at St. Joe's, okay. which was really fun because, uh, you know, the college year is ending, so – all the kids are out tr- and trying about, to get trying out. Trying to get yeah. last party in. Yeah, uh-huh. before they move back home. So that was really fun. Um, then Saturday, we did a full bloom music festival at Pace and Blossom, which was a huge success. It was awesome. The place was packed. Mm-hmm. We played like all EDM music. Uh, and it was like a little festival of our own. So that right. was really cool. I got to play for an hour. Um, yeah, and it was fun. And then yesterday, I just spent the day with my family for Mother's Day. Right, me too. And me too. Now we're here. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great weekend. How was your weekend, Manny? You said EDM music. What's that? <laughs> Electronic that dance music. <laughs> I got I to gotta look that up <laughs> to get familiar with it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, Mother's Day weekend is typically, uh, uh, through the years, it's it's challenging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, people make plans. Obviously, it's it's all based on, on family and whatnot. So, um it's typically a challenging weekend for anybody in the business. Um, we Friday we had um, Rick Wonder, and it started off really uh, like, oh boy, what's going to happen? And then it just out of nowhere, it just popped, really? which was great. Yeah, and Rick is fantastic. He's one of my favorite, uh, not just one of my favorite DJs, but um, you know the guy. He's always happy. He's always happy. That yeah. guy and. When he plays, it's he has his own party. He's just dancing in the booth, and uh, just the way he plays and what he plays. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's very, um, you know, it's one of those things that that energy definitely goes out Translates. onto the floor, and yeah. then you yeah. know you have a great party. So um, Friday was a uh, big surprise because we thought it was going to be soft, mm-hmm. and then Saturday we had uh, you know Morton. Um, uh, for those, of, I'm, I'm I'm sure you know who Morton is. Yeah. He's uh, David Guetta's partner. They they. Um, mm-hmm basically um started this future rave sound uh that you know started and then kind of got off to a slow start and now it's just massive um so he's one of our residents uh, he plays multiple times a year for us and um he was supposed to arrive around ten thirty from uh, uh orlando and he sent me a video basically he's sitting on on the plane and you hear the overhead thing that they're going back to the gate there's some sort of problem mm-hmm. so oh, God. <clears throat> so yeah uh the uh the wonderful uh life of night clubbing <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you'll love it it's nightlife you'll love it it's great it'd be great so um 
So, but he ended up arriving. He arrived late. Uh, uh, and typically, headliners go on uh, at one one a.m. Mm-hmm. And he literally arrived to ACY at uh, a quarter to quarter to one. Oh wow! Um, but uh, uh, my friend Neo, who was uh, you know the opening DJ, uh, he held the uh, held the room down, and it was just again, it just turned out to be we were going to go with only one floor because it looked like it was going to be slow. Mm-hmm. And then again, out of nowhere, like, oh, we got to open up both fours. And then yeah. we ended up having a, a, a an incredibly busy night. So sometimes things just work out. Yeah. yeah. Great yeah. weekend, though. Tell me a little about, like, your early life. Um, I know Frank mentioned me. You're from Spain and then moved to the U.S. Uh, yeah. So I um, – actually, I was born in Paris. My mom and dad were okay. living in Paris. And um, I came along unexpectedly. That's the story that I – was told so <laughs> me too so <laughs> uh so i think within a year um my mom and dad ended up moving back to spain so i grew up there until and then in the uh at one point they migrated to the u.s um and i think five years after they came to the u.s they brought uh, uh my sister and i and my older brother came with them initially so so i actually came to the u.s i turned 12 the day i okay. got to the u.s so it's very different, obviously, and uh, we uh, um, they were living in Boston, so I was in Boston for a long time, and then um, uh, ended up moving down to the South Jersey area right. uh, in 2004. When did you start getting into like nightlife, DJing, all that? So I was always uh, a fan of music. My dad had always wanted to be a musician, uh, never had the opportunity to, so I think that he always wanted one of his kids to eventually you know, become a, a musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it was within like three months of me being in the U.S., he bought me a saxophone. Oh, wow. And I started, um, you know, fooling around with it. He um, um, he got me classes, and I remember taking classes. I didn't speak English at the time. So right, I, I, I had this teacher, and I swear to you, I think I did jingle bells on the saxophone <laughs> for nine months. <laughs> and I was so disgusted yeah. that I just didn't even want to see the saxophone. But what I learned was that I could listen to a song and I could figure out how to play it back. Mm-hmm. I couldn't read music, but if, if I liked a melody or if I, uh, you know, had the radio on and I would listen to a song, I would pick up the saxophone and I could, I don't know how I did it, but I would figure it out. Like, okay, that sounds good. That sounds good. Or that doesn't sound good. And get it to where I could play the song just by ear. Um, then eventually, um, I, um, had an interest in playing the drums, um, bought a used, uh, drum set, set it up in the basement and drove my parents nuts. And then I went to a, uh, a teen dance. It was like a high school dance and, mm-hmm. you know, there was a hall and there was music and I had never seen a DJ in my life. So there was a DJ that was playing music. So I, you know, I wanted to see where the music was coming from. So I came upon where the DJ was set up and I was just... I saw the turntables and I was like, wow. I looked at them as an instrument. Yeah, so definitely. I was like, okay, well, I have to do that. <laughs> so um, I went out, I bought a pair of Newmark turntables and a Radio Shack mixer. <laughs> and, uh, Radio Shack. Huh? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just started to buy vinyl and uh, did a, a similar thing, just set up in the basement. And I had no idea what, what, um, you know, beat mixing was. I just mm-hmm. knew that it was blending two records together, but I didn't know music theory. I didn't know how music was structured. So I basically spent about a year doing it wrong right. until I got a, a cassette tape from a DJ that I started to go see on the weekends. It was a Sunday party, and it was um, uh, it was 16 plus. 
Okay. So I could get in there. What? Yeah, I was 16 plus. plus. That, yeah. That's not a thing anymore. Yeah, that no, no. <laughs> so um, I got, he gave me a tape, and I, I basically, I remember going to a record store, and I gave the owner of the record store um, the, the tape, and I said, I want every record on this cassette. Mm-hmm. I spent $136. Uh, it was all freestyle records. Okay. Frank knows what freestyle is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that's it. And then I... Um, Stevie B. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know and freestyle. So, so what yeah. happened was that on that tape, the way the DJ was mixing, I could, you know, I could tell by my ear when he was mixing. So that's when it clicked for me. You know, because when I was mixing, I, I, I was just trying to use the pitch control to get the records to be yeah. at the same tempo, mm-hmm. but I wasn't sure when to mix. And obviously, if you don't know, it's like kind of sneakers in the dryer, right? You got melodies over each other and all that stuff. So um, that, you know, listening to that tape, that's where I said, okay, this is how it's done. And from there, I just started to really practice and practice and practice. And um, when I felt comfortable enough, I went to the smallest bar I could find in Boston. (laughs) And I went in and I said, hey, I'm a new DJ. I'm just starting out. How old were you? Oh, man. I was probably, um, at that point, I was probably 19. Okay. I was probably 19 years old. And, um, you know, I, um, uh, he gave me a Thursday. He gave me a Thursday night, and it was, it was a college night. So it was just, I could play, you know, whatever I wanted. And um, funny enough, it's, a, it's an interesting story, and I know it's, you know, I could go on forever about stories. But um, this man started a, a company um, that was called Megamix. It is now known as Xmix. Okay. So the owner of the company was managing that bar. Mm. He gave me, you know, an opportunity, and I was always, I never called out. I was always on time. And within a year, he said, I'm opening this company. Would you like to come and work with me? And I said, sure, because it was right near my house. Mm. And... Um, the people initially in that uh, in that company, it was uh, someone that's known as Armand Van Helden. So Armand, nobody knew Armand then. Armand was just no different than than me. Uh, we were just guys that were into music, and uh, we started doing remixes. Well, I I wasn't doing remixes. I had no idea about production at the time. I was working at the company, selling records, selling these, you know, just making calls. Right now, it's all digital based. You just go online, and I want this. You download it. Right. Yeah. Back then, it was easier. you had to pick up the phone and say, hey. Um, such and such calling from Megamix, are you interested in this, that, the other? So it was a very wow. different time. But that really got my head into, uh, it was Lenny Bertoldo, who's still around, and also Armand. Armand is having a resurgence again. I just saw him on some, some festival announcement today. But that's, um, that really got my interest in, in, you know, in production. But with the DJing thing, it just... Um, you know, I just got 100% into it, and that's what I was doing. I, that's all I did. I started to DJ and really get better at it, and uh, I would spend my summers in Spain, and I would come back with all kinds of imports and I European bet, yeah. music the, that was not yeah. released in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And Boston, because of the universities, it has a lot of kids from all over the world, from right. South America, you know, from the Far East, from Spain, France, everywhere. So I was bringing back... Music that if you know that those kids were just listening to in the islands, if they were in Ibiza mm-hmm. for the summer or Saint Tropez or Mykonos, they were listening to that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now they come back to school in Boston and hear some guy playing the music yeah. they just heard. So mm-hmm. that really made my career took off. And um, I was very fortunate, I had some really good residencies. I was at the Roxy, uh, and then I went to Avalon, which is now the House of Blues. But those were like okay. 
massive clubs um, that I, I just had a lot of, you know, uh, I had a great time. Obviously, for me, DJing was just, you know, it was, uh, it was such a high for me, you know, to be able to play music that I loved and more importantly, also be given the opportunity to, to, to play music that you like. Mm -hmm. Because um, over the years, it's been more like people want to, you know, they want to hear what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was never questioned. I was just like, you know, whatever I was doing seemed to work. So they just gave me free reign. So it was, there was some great times for sure. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I kind of had a like, similar, you know, story with just ha always having a love for music. And I actually played drums like since I was maybe 10 years old. So I was always like really interested in it. I went to a high school uh, GAMP, I don't know if you heard of it, in South mm -hmm. Philly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they taught me music theory, which I still like. It's on so. South 22nd Street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right in there. You love it South there. 22nd and Porter, to be exact. <laughs> yep, yep. Like, that's, who is that's this exactly. guy? <laughs> he knows everything. Um, but, yeah, I was like the similar way. I always knew I wanted to do something with music, and I never thought like DJing would be it. But when I went to college, I uh, got the opportunity to start doing like fraternity and sorority parties. And I was like, the same exact way. I had no idea what beat matching was or anything. And Weiss actually gave me my first bar gig, mm. um, who I know works with you at yeah, HQ a, a lot. Guy. We love yeah. mm. And um, I remember he texted me like the day after, and he was like, listen, like they loved your music. You have a great song selection, but you have to learn how to like fucking mix. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, w I went, and, went and watched him at uh, Tradesman's, and he was just like teaching me some things uh, the week after. And, yeah, that's kind of how like when it really clicked, like actually watching someone else do it. So you know, when people ask me, they're like, how do you like, how did you transition from college to like actually doing bars and clubs? I'm like, you have to like go out and like meet other DJs and yep. like, learn from them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm sure just DJing in like, you know, big cities like Boston, Philly, AC, you have worked with a ton of different DJs and artists and, you know, things along that. Have you ever had like a mentor like that like really taught you or was it kind of just, you just like learned as you went so um you know uh, i was fortunate to um you know to be around good people and i think no matter what you do in life that's obviously very important right um when i started gaining popularity um back back then there was a um uh, we had record pools mm -hmm. so i i believe there's still record pools but they're all digital now yeah mm -hmm. so um you know record pools were basically just like, uh, let's say, a company such as this, but basically uh, they petition record labels to like, hey, send me advanced promos, right? So, and it, it all depended on, well, who's, who's on your roster? Like, who, which DJs do you have in your pool, right? Because obviously a record label uh, in those days, they wanted to get, uh, you know, music in front of the right people. Mm -hmm. DJs, it wasn't radio stations breaking music. It was DJs that were breaking records, you know, uh, when a radio station would play a record, it was because it, it had already been tested, you know, street level right, yeah, in the yeah. clubs. Right. So uh, real, in my opinion, because I got to meet, you know, one man specific that, that, that he was uh, the program director at KISS 108 in Boston, which is the equivalent of, uh, I guess, Q102 in Philly, yeah. so a similar yeah. station. Uh, Sonny Joe White was his name. And he, every weekend, he was in clubs mm -hmm. because he wanted to see what was moving the crowds. And I, I used to, it's incredible because I, I used to listen to him on the radio and then I got to meet him. He, he started coming to, to the club that I was DJing at and he liked the music I was playing. So he introduced himself and we would talk music and stuff like that. But if he liked something, he would literally run out 
find a record and it would be programmed on the radio station, which is amazing. And it should be, it, sh- it should be more organic rather than data driven. Right. Um, but um, the, the guy that owned the record pool, Gary Canavo, he said, you know, you should become a billboard reporter. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> right. And he said, well, uh, obviously uh, you're familiar with billboard magazine. I said, sure. I said, all right, well, you know how that chart is compiled on the dance side. So the dance, uh, the billboard, top 50 right for dance it's compiled by a group of about 100 djs that billboard selects okay and then every week you submit a chart off of what you're playing and that's how the top 50 so those lists are compiled every week Mm -hmm. by the hundred and so djs and then that list becomes the top 50 yeah so i'm like okay sounds great so he said uh make a mix and and get it to me and uh, uh i'll send it to billboard so I'm like, okay, <laughs> I make a mix, two turntables, recorded on a reel-to-reel, okay, so it was high quality. A reel-to-reel, I, uh, I put it on a cassette tape. And again, one of those great, you talk about a mentor and you talk about, um, you know, uh, a, great, a great story, right, a great lesson. And I, had, I was happy with it, you know, I mean, I made it, I, I had the right, you know, music selection, in my opinion. I give it to Gary, and just like this, he had a cassette tape, and I'm sitting here, he's sitting there, he puts a cassette tape and, you know, play, fast forward, play, fast forward. He was listening to the, the programming and the mixing. Mm-hmm. He stopped it, takes it out, and he goes, you're better than this, and oh. he throws it in the garbage. <laughs> wow. I'm like, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I'm like, all right. So, I went back. And I, I did, I don't know how long it took, whatever, you know, because I practiced now, you know, you're, you think you did all right. And this guy just says, <laughs> yeah. this is shit. Yeah. yeah. Right now. Now you're nervous. Now you're like, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, it was a great lesson because I think that, you know, we go, I go back to what I said earlier, that if you surround yourself with people that, uh, that push you, um, that want, that see maybe things in you that you don't see in yourself, mm-hmm. those are the people you, that you want to surround yourself with because mm-hmm. they, they, they're, um, you know, they want you to be better. So, um, so I went back, I did this thing, I bring it back. He, and I was like, Oh oh my God. I'm like, now I just stood back. I didn't want him to throw it at me, but he, uh, he said, okay, this is good. We're going to send it. So uh, he sent it to, uh, to billboard and I got a call. Uh, his name was Ricardo Compagnoni. He was uh, the head of, uh, you know, billboard that side. And, um, in 1996, I became a billboard reporter and, um, you know, so every week, basically, I would um, I would get records in advance. So now picture, you know, a song that gets released that we all play. I would get it like two, three months in advance. Yeah, right, right. And um. then what we would do, uh, well, not I. I mean, like, you know, the whole panel, mm-hmm. right? Then you listen to it and you give feedback. Because a lot of times the song was not out yet. They were like testing it out. And the feedback that we would provide you know, would actually have an impact on maybe the production, a remix. Yeah. Um, so there were incredible times back then. And I, I was a billboard reporter from 1996 up until COVID. I oh. uh, was uh, lucky and very fortunate. That was one of the longest, um, you know, tenured billboard reporters. And once, once COVID hit, you know, we were down for because, you know, the clubs weren't open. Yeah. So you can't do a chart unless you're playing music. Yeah, right. You right, know, right. yeah, uh, makes sense. But it was it was great, and uh, that was that's one thing that um, you know that always stuck with me. And then uh, one more quick story: a gentleman that was very influential uh, uh, with me, uh, Dana. His name is uh, well, he, he passed away, but uh, um, 
his name is Dana Jacobitis, legendary, legendary DJ in Boston. Um, and legendary in the music industry because I, I didn't know, I didn't know at the time, but he was like um, very influential in the 70s. Uh, like I'm sure the song Frank knows, uh, Born to be Alive by Patrick Hernandez. Mm-hmm. They would not be Patrick Hernandez without Danai. Danai made that record. Oh, wow. Okay. And bought it too. Huh. He felt so, so strong about it that he brought it to the record label and said, you have to listen to this. Um, but one of the things that he, that he taught me, he was so incredible at programming music and mixing, right? That when, I don't know about now, because not a lot of people use turntables, but back then we used turntables, mm-hmm. there's a pitch control to either, you know, uh, make it go faster or make it go slower. Yeah. So a lot of DJs, including myself, you know, sometimes if you needed to speed up the record, you would kind of put your finger on the, on top of the record, on, on the inner part, mm-hmm. and just kind of give it a little push or like ride it so it went a little bit faster. Or you would run your finger on the side of the platter to slow it down. Right. So he saw me do that, and he went, don't do that. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, there's a pitch control on the side of your turntable. If you're pushing it, it's because you need to, you know, make it go faster on the pitch control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're slowing it down, it means that it's too fast and you need to slow it down. So, and I, I said, oh, wow, okay. So I went to work. To this day, when I play a record, you never see me touch the platter. Because that's that's what the pitch is for, even yeah, on a CDJ. Yeah. I put a song, you, you you know, you chase the beat, you get it to where you want to be, you cue it again, you hit play, and you, you just go. I you never see me do this. Right, right. So that was yeah. a a great thing that I took away with me. Um, and I can't imagine those guys in the seventies that didn't have pitch control. They were all belt driven turntables. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. you had to be really talented back then. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely was a lot harder to become a dj back then i feel like then now it's a lot easier to you know buy a board and you have your laptop well, in front of you with a million songs and you kind of i, I just mean go. listen it's it's yeah not only um now djs are like the new rock stars right yeah they're, they're the um they're center stage right mm-hmm. they're playing in front of tens of thousands of people back then djs were djing from a coat check room it was like dj was not respected the dj was just somewhere in a corner um and uh, you know now it's 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 incredible to see where how far the 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 culture has come you know right, to, yeah. to go from uh, you know DJs that used to have you know lug around milk crates full of records yeah. before record boxes mm-hmm. you know um, and um, now you bring a laptop and you have a hundred thousand songs in your hard yeah. drive yeah. back then you basically carried either two two milk crates and. You either had the song or you didn't. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, there was no searching. <laughs> you yeah, know, right. let, let me search for a song. Yeah, you search for vinyl, and then CD came around, obviously, which was great. Um, and then I was uh, the laptop thing. Obviously, was great in the sense that you had everything at your at your fingertips, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it was just never for me personally. It was just never my thing. I, I'm still a guy that likes to DJ and touch and feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but you know, you have to embrace technology because if you don't, then you're, you're lost right? mm-hmm. and somebody yeah. else comes in and, and you're done. So, but it's, it's been uh, incredible to see, to see the change over the years. Yeah. And I know you mentioned like DJs, they're, they're rock stars now. I feel like back then it wasn't so like needed that DJs have to also tap into producing. I think mean, now I feel like every DJ, big time DJ you see that's getting headliner gigs, it's because they produced a song and their song blew up. Uh, and I know you got into producing a little bit 
um, or maybe a lot of it. <laughs> so I will learn now. I dabbled. But um, yeah, what, what type of music did you uh, start producing and what age did you start producing at? So um, it's similar to DJing, right? It's um, you want to, um, uh, I had a, you know, a passion for it, but the, the, the toughest thing in anything you do in life is getting started. Mm-hmm. Right, because what happens when you don't know about something, you're 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 intimidated, and you you kind of almost you want to do it, but then you start overthinking it, and then you're like, oh man, I'm never gonna learn. That's gonna be too much. So you're almost your worst enemy is your mind, right? It's your thoughts mm-hmm. because you can you can either use them to motivate you or use them to hold you back from doing something great. Yeah. So I knew that music lived inside of me. I knew it. Um, you know. And I knew because ever since I was little, I, I loved melodies. I loved sound. I, and it doesn't, you know, I'm not a guy, oh, I only do this or I only like this. Music is universal and it's, it's, uh, it's just, um, how do I say it, infinite, right? You, I could give you the same 20 records, right, that I have, and I bet you that we, that we will play them differently. Yeah, yeah You definitely. could give me the same... Uh, the same sound libraries and the same equipment, and I would, you know, I would do something different with the same tools. Like being a chef, give me the same ingredients. I'm going to do something that's different from yours, although we we have the same, uh, uh, you know, the same product. So, for me, the DJing thing just kind of, uh, um, you know, I had that yearning for producing because I was playing music that spoke to me. And it also spoke to thousands of people because I would play in front of them every weekend and I would just see mm-hmm. the impact. I'm like, man, that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. So I said, I have to learn. I have to. But again, where do you start? You know, and then you go out and you buy stuff and it's all, you know, I'm not, I'm a visual learner. I, I'm not a guy that cracks that? open a, a book and yeah, read. Yeah. That, that's not me, right? Mm-hmm. That's not how I do things or how I learn. To me, it's let me see you do it and then I'll do it. So, um, it was funny because I uh, forget what year. It might have been 1999 or 2000. I got booked to play with Paul Oakenfold uh, in Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City. Massive space. And um, so I go down there. It's Thanksgiving Eve, I think. And um, I'm playing. And Paul was delayed. So the promoter said, hey, man, keep playing. I'm like, well, I'm kind of running out of opening <laughs> stuff. Right, yeah. I'm yeah. either I'm either, I'm either going to hammer this room or <laughs> like or I'm going to start playing doubles. Mm-hmm. So he said, "Do what you got to do." I'm like, "Okay." And I'm playing and then this I feel somebody like tugging at my leg and I look down cuz I was on like some some sort of stage and it's this this lady and said, "Can I come up?" And sure. So she comes up and she's uh, uh she said, "My name is Jan Johnston." I, I said, "Oh my god, I'm saying Jan Johnston." So Jan Johnston was in that in that era. She was um, um, she was from the UK. Well, she's from the UK. She lives in Spain now. But uh, great singer songwriter, and uh, she was doing. Um, she was like the voice for like the Paul Oakenfolds, mm-hmm. the BTS at the time, the Paul Van Dykes, which were like the gods of dance music at that at that time. Uh, so I'm like, I didn't believe her at first. Right, and I said, um, mm, not not sold. Mm-hmm. So uh, I said, I know your music, but I mean, uh, I said, no, it's me, really, it's me. <laughs> I said, all right, sing me a song, and I'm like, oh my god, it's Jan Johnston. Yeah. So she hung out in the booth. She really loved my set. Then Paul eventually shows up, so she goes, can you come backstage? I go backstage, 
And she's like, wow, you know, this really is Jan Johnston. And I also got to meet uh, Jana back there, which is another story or a song I did for her. But anyway, she, she, um, she, she asked me, do you produce? And I said, well, I don't, but I'm, I'm in the, you know, I, I, I found somebody that is a, uh, an actual uh, sound engineer mm-hmm. and I'm in the middle of Learning, doing yeah. stuff with him. Anyway, finished the gig. We traded numbers. She calls me a week later. She comes to Boston. She stayed in my house for three months and we just went in. Cause the thing with me, when I walked into a studio, it's, it's overwhelming because back then it was just racks of equipment, mm-hmm. keyboards, knobs. It was like, mm-hmm. it, it's like that? you're getting ready to like, you know, launch a rocket. And I'm like, <laughs> where do I start? Yeah, yeah. But my ear and in my head, I knew what I wanted to hear. So mm-hmm. I, I, again, I, I, um, um, I met this guy, Gene Simmons, great, still friends to this day. Um, and I'm sorry, not Gene Simmons, Wait. Gene Williams, Gene Williams. Sorry. Yeah, I was like, Gene Simmons. <laughs> but I also met Gene Simmons. That's so, so cool. but that's a story for, for later. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, what I could do is I could describe sounds or I could go, I could start, you know, um, on a keyboard. I could go through like the, the library and I would like, this is the sound. Mm-hmm. And then I would hum what I wanted to hear. And then he, we would make it right. And that's how. And then I was like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. Because I was just, yeah. it, it's a, it was very, very uh, addictive because you're, you're creating something from nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so cool for me, which is incredibly cool. So um, we ended up uh, just, uh, you know, uh, doing a record with her, a whole entire record that, um, that was supposed to come out on, uh, on Perfecto, which was Paul Oakenfold's record label. And unfortunately at that time was when Napster... Are you familiar with Napster? Yeah. Napster came. So imagine, so yeah, Napster is some kid that went to Northeastern University in Boston, mm-hmm. created something where you could, like anybody, could upload music. Or if it was in your hard drive, mm-hmm. people could pull it from there. So now you, you no longer had to buy music. Music mm-hmm. was free. At the time, I had a record store. And it was always packed because people used to come in. All the DJs, they knew me. They want, we, want it, we want the music that you play. Mm-hmm. And then I had the kids that would come to the club. They're like, we want the music that you play. So <laughs> right. the DJs, yeah. here's the records. And to the, uh, you know, to the, you know, the club kids, it's like, well, here's a great compilation. And then you go from that to like, we can get this for free. And that devastated the music industry at the time because record labels have been doing it like that forever. Yeah. So what mm-hmm. do you do now, right? I mean, imagine mm-hmm. going to the store. Okay, I want this. And this is product that I got to pay for. And then somebody figures out a way you can get the same product for free. Mm-hmm. How, do you, be, how do you yeah. adjust? So yeah. it was a very weird time for the music industry. And unfortunately, that whole record that we had done with 11 songs never came out. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, That's so defeating. Yeah, well, I've learned that you know every day we're tested in life mm-hmm. and there there's a reason for everything that the key is is for you to have enough patience and wisdom or to say i don't know everything but i i you know in my life i've um uh realized that things in your life happen when they're supposed to happen yeah um so yeah, was it disappointing? Yeah, because we had we had spent a lot of time working, and I mean, it's when you work with a pro like her, she was very picky mm-hmm. on how she wanted her vocals to sound, and then it's not just recording the vocals and stacks and stacks and stacks of vocals, but then, you know, building a music bed around it where those vocals can sit nicely, mm-hmm. and every vocalist I've ever worked with, they're a little 
nutty. <laughs> because to them, all they hear is their voice. They don't hear, they don't care about anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that just got me really into production. Then I started buying gear and I set up a little, you know, a little studio in my house and I, and I just, I just never looked back. Um, and then I, I think I stopped around 2007. I think it was the last, the last thing I did was a remix for Peter Rauhofer. Um, God bless his soul. He passed away. He was an incredible DJ and incredible producer, uh, from Austria, but he lived in New York and, uh, he was very, very picky. And I did a, uh, a remix. We got an opportunity um, with Davey Gold, also, uh, who's no longer here with us. Uh, Davey uh, used to work for uh, Strictly Rhythm mm-hmm. and then Groove Alicious, and uh, which was two very well-known record labels for DJs. And um, he sent us the vocals. We, we did it. And it was like Peter was very, very tough on how a record needed to sound. And we said, well, look, let's, let's take a shot. We did it, and he's, he loved it. And like, oh, my God, it, we were so, so happy. Um, and, you know, at the time, I had, uh, I had my daughter in 2003. I think this was 2007. And any time I would go into the studio in the house, you know, Olivia would hear music, and she would come down the steps, and I'll be sitting here, and she would just kind of crawl, crawl up on my leg. And, you know, she wanted to. <laughs> so, and so I stopped because uh, as much as I loved music and as much as I loved the production end of it, being with my daughter was more important. Yeah, so I, yeah. I just stopped. Um, that was the last time I did, um, I did music, really. Um, I did some things here and there, some edits, and then COVID happened. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, and I went, I, up, you know, upgraded all my stuff, and it was like starting over again mm-hmm. because you know the technology changed so, so much. Probably, right. And um, and yeah, I mean, it was so exciting because to be able to produce again, it's just for me, it's very, um, um, just personally rewarding. Yeah. Because you're creating something where. I mean, you have all the tools, but what are you doing? And mm-hmm. it just, I, I started doing stuff again. And as you know what, I, I became over the years, I became um, friends with Paul Oakenfold. Mm-hmm. And I said, for shits and giggles, let me just send him this. I, and I sent it to him and he said, wow, I, re- I really like this one. I'm, and I was shocked because I, I just said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of fooling around again. Maybe one of these will fit into one of your sets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not thinking that, hey, I like this. What are you doing with it? I want to sign it to Perfecto. So imagine Paul Oakenfold was, in my opinion, he was the pioneer of dance music. There would not be a Tiesto, there would not be a, an a Armin Van Buren, a Paul Van Dyke without Paul Oakenfold. Paul Oakenfold mm-hmm. in 1991 was touring with U2, okay. the opening yeah. act for U2. Wow. A DJ with two turntables. Yeah, yeah. And one of the, one of the first CDs he did it was uh, in Wembley Stadium, 120,000 people. <laughs> And there's Paul Oakenfold with two turntables yeah. and just That's a insane. massive crowd and opening uh, for uh, for you too. Um, so he was someone that I always looked up to. I loved his productions, and I um, I got to meet him. Um, I booked him in Boston. He came, and I was just like like starstruck. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And one of the things that I I learned from him that was it was the first time ever back when I was DJing at Avalon. Picture 2,000 people in a room just dancing, right? No, no, no phones. Nobody had phones. So people dancing. When Paul Oakenfold came, it was the first time that the entire club 
was facing the DJ. Like if you were like a, like a, a band. Yeah. 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 Everybody there was like, look, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> like I never forgot it. Here's Paul Oakenfold DJing and everybody's looking at this guy. Mm. Yeah. And I remember that two things that he would like randomly, he would point at somebody in the crowd, like just random. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, People yeah, going yeah. Nuts, like, hey, He just pointed at me. Oh, and then I remember at the end of a show, uh, people would bring either like a T-shirt, uh, like a Perfecto T-shirt they bought, or like a record of his or a mm-hmm. CD. And no matter what, it, he signed everybody's stuff. That's awesome. When yeah, he, that's really cool. When yeah. like he said, we're done? Okay. Then he would go back to his hotel. Uh, so I was a fan of his because of the music that he was doing that I, I found was very profound. Um, but then seeing him in action as a professional, he wasn't the best mixer. But he, he just knew, you said something earlier about when you were doing your, you know, your college stuff and then it went into a club. We can talk about it later if you want. So he wasn't the smoothest mixer, mm-hmm. but man, he knew when to drop a song right, that would yeah, just make yeah. the place go nuts, which in my opinion is more important. No one went to play the right song at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is more important than, than being smooth, uh, you know, mixing. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time, the people that are just there drinking and dancing, they just want to hear music that they like and want to, you know, and enjoy listening to. They want to dance. And if you're not playing songs that they like, you could be the best mixer in the world. It a million matter. percent. Yeah. Be, being a DJ, um, uh, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's um, you know, people, people are paying to, to go in and have a good time. And I always used to say, the day people are lined up outside a venue with $50 in their hands to listen to me, then I can educate. Mm-hmm. But up until that point, I'm, I'm just a servant. I'm, I'm a person that got hired to provide people, to set the tone in the room to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And you're not always going to make everybody happy, right? Because people have different tastes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you have more wins than losses, then, then, then you're doing a good job. There were times as, um, as a DJ where I felt that technically I had a great night, personally, right? Yeah, yeah. That, but it didn't translate to the dance floor. And other times that I felt, oh, man, I had an off night technically, mm-hmm. you know? People said, and like, dude, this was great. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you sounded awesome. So as a DJ, me personally, uh, I've always struggled with, um, you know, it was never about me. It was never about me being happy. I'm happy playing music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's always about, am I doing the right thing by the people that came here? You got to remove your ego. Right. You got to remove your ego uh, from that. And I've seen a lot of people get caught up in that because all of a sudden you are center stage. Mm-hmm. You're right there and everybody's looking at you. Yeah. Um, you can never believe your own bullshit. Right? The minute you start believing your own bullshit, you need better friends that mm-hmm. are going to say, knock it off. Right. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but that's, that, that's true, right? If people really care about you, yeah. they're going to give you a pat on the back when you say, man, that was great. They're also going to, you know, pull you by your ear and say, what are you doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, I, I've been very fortunate that I've had great opportunities and, and I, uh, I was able to make the most of them, but, I, uh, I've always surrounded myself with good people that, um, that cheered for me, but also told me, um, you know, when, when I needed to get it together. It's really interesting. You know, we've talked about it before, how you, you started out as a DJ producer. Uh, but it's interesting that you are involved or were involved in kind of all aspects of nightlife because I feel like that's pretty rare. It's usually somebody's just a DJ or somebody's just on you know, the business side of it. But you're able to kind of give us uh, 
you know, perspective from both sides. Uh, but how did you kind of get into the management side of this business? Uh, when did you transition from being a DJ to, to being a manager or on the business side? So, um, you know, over the years, uh, because I, I, I genuinely love what I do, you know, I, it's, I'm very fortunate that I get to do what I love for a living and get paid for it. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I try to always keep myself grounded because, uh, you know, as an immigrant, I didn't always do things that I love. I had a, you know, I just worked and, you know, to make money. Right. Uh, but, you know, you continue to, to kind of follow your passion and, and uh, stay true to what you do. And then you get opportunities. And anytime you get an opportunity, you you try to maximize it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was in Boston, uh, besides, you know, DJing, obviously I had a record store. Um, I had a recording studio. Um, and then I, I ended up to actually for a short time before I moved here, I, I opened up, um, um, a, a DJ school because I wanted to teach anybody that had an interest. Yeah. That's in, awesome. That's so yeah. Cool. yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. I mean, I wrote out a whole curriculum it was called DJ mix Academy yeah. <laughs> and it was great. Uh, and, um, but you know, I always wanted to, to learn more. Um, and I, as I, got older and then, you know, uh, I had uh, my first daughter, you know, you, you realize, okay, well, how long, not that I'm, not that I look, I mean, I could, I could DJ today. I mean, this Saturday when, when I told, uh, when I knew that, um, that Morton was, you know, arriving late, I just told the opener, yeah. I said, listen, you, you go on later. I just played cause I love playing, yeah. you <laughs> know? Um, and, um, but so it's not that, that I wanted to stop DJing. It's just that you have to think, okay, uh, your life it has different uh, phases, I guess, right? And I just saw myself, okay, well, you know, I had an incredible run as a DJ. That was my profession. I did that professionally for 15 years. Mm-hmm. It's how I made my living, right? And then, but while I was DJing, I mean, I also had other things. I had the record store, the, uh, you know, the recording studio, mm-hmm. uh, the DJ school, I was booking talent. I was learning marketing, how to market these shows, how to roll them out, how to go on an on-sale, how to scale tickets, all that stuff. And then in 2004, um, 2003, Olivia was born. That was my first daughter. Um, my, uh, their mom was from South Philly. Oh, okay. So we ended, it was important to us, although in Boston, we, we loved the city and we had great friends. All my family had moved back to Spain. So I was there by myself. Okay. So we felt strongly that we wanted to raise our children around other siblings. Moved down here. And um, it was my first opportunity to like, all right, well, what do you do now? Do you go to work for someone else? So I opened up a, uh, uh, with, um, uh, with a partner, opened up a, uh, a lounge in uh, an old city called 114. Okay. Um, it was right next to Suede, I think it was, uh, between second and front. So oh, okay. Market gotcha, Street gotcha. between yeah. second and front. Mm-hmm. And because I had developed such great relationships with a lot of DJs that I was booking in Boston, mm-hmm. I told them, hey, I got a little spot in Philly. It's not Avalon. It's not 2,000 people. Uh, but it's a 200-person capacity lounge, very intimate. And they were like, we're in. So I started bringing in these guys that really didn't belong in that room because they were big room DJs. But because right. of yeah. how I, you know, the relationship that we had, uh, you know, forged, mm-hmm. it was like, you're in, we're in. Uh, so that was, uh, uh, my first attempt at actually doing everything from soup to nuts. And what I did do, I hired, um, 
I hired a GM that I knew, and then I worked under him because I wanted to learn. I was doing what I did as a, you know, uh, uh, as an owner, but, you know, and I could program and I could market, but I wanted to learn the back end. Mm-hmm. You know, how does the stuff work behind the scenes mm-hmm. with, you know, how do you order product? Yeah. You know, how do you control cost? How do you, you know, how do you do these things that are very, very important? Because mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, that's the money. Right. The front part yeah. is the marketing, but mm-hmm. ultimately you do the marketing so it can be successful. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I learned that and uh, for four, about four years. And then in 2008, I got an opportunity to, um, to go to Atlantic City and I got my first gig at a casino. Um, we ended up selling the business and I got an opportunity to work at Showboat um, and, uh, in Atlantic city. And I was, uh, the operations manager for the casino. And one of the things that, 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 you know, um, that I was, um, involved in was, um, foundation room and, um, uh, which was part of the house of blues. So they had the big concert venue, mm-hmm. they had a foundation room and they had worship, which was a nightclub mm-hmm. that struggled I think uh, because of the layout and whatnot, that's where actually I I met Frank. <laughs> oh really? So, oh, okay. Yeah, how I met Frank, I w- <laughs> it was literally I think it was a few days before Christmas, mm, two thousand eight, I think. And the uh, uh, the boss um, goes, we have a problem. Whoever was supposed to do New Year's Eve mm-hmm. at um, uh, what you call it um, at worship backed out. And I, we were having lunch, and he was stressing out. And I said, I, I, I can put it together. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, I can put it together. Literally yeah. within an hour, I put this whole thing together. And, you know, we ended up doing, I think, like 600 people. Uh, and they were like, can you do this more often? <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately, that's what I do, right? That's, that's where I'm comfortable. That's the business that I know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The operational side was great in the sense that it, it was teaching me how to really run a large department with, you know, a couple of hundred employees, right. That are all, uh, you know, part of what makes a, uh, a casino work. Yeah. But so it was great that I was learning that, but this other stuff on the side, I could do that with my eyes closed and I, and so, okay, well you got to do more anyway, mm-hmm. within, within four months, they, uh, they sent me from showboat to the pool at Harris. Because it was a sister property at the time, it was Caesars, Bally's, Showboat, and Harris. Mm-hmm. They were all owned by Caesars Entertainment. Mm-hmm. So I went there, and uh, April, I think it was April two thousand nine. Okay. And um, yeah, just took over the pool. Frank was there. I think um, he was just supplying DJs at the time. Uh, and then I got I you know I liked Frank right away. We spoke the same language, and I got him more involved. <clears throat> and the rest is history, as they say on that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for me on the operational side, it was learning all the other aspects. It was, uh, you know, learning the business side of it. And then when you combine all of that, right, because the the, the thing is um, a lot of people that do standalone nightclubs, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for them to work in a corporate setting. Because they're used to doing things a certain way, mm-hmm. and they don't check with anybody else. In a casino, there's compliance. Right. Yeah. The, there are all these things that you have to do, and That's there's a cool. way of doing them. Mm-hmm. So that was incredibly um, um, advantageous to me because I knew how to speak to a street level promoter, and I knew how to speak to a CEO. 
and everyone in between. You have to know your audience. You have to know who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. You know, typically, uh, people in the casino industry, when you're sitting in a setting like this talking about business, th- it's all about bottom line, mm-hmm. return on investment. If I give you this, how much money are you making me back? Mm-hmm. Right? What kind of impact is this going to have on the property? Um, <clears throat> so, you know, um, so you have to speak their language. Uh, if I'm speaking to a DJ, I know exactly the lingo. I know exactly right. what. Yeah. Just like if I'm speaking to uh, a street level promoter, right, that's hustling to you know to try to make uh, uh, you know an event uh, happen, mm-hmm. and then you're speaking to a chief marketing officer, both trying to do the same thing, very, very different, different conversation. Different yeah. So these are the things that over the years, you know, it's knowing your audience, knowing how uh, what triggers somebody, and making it so you speak their language on both sides so they feel comfortable in doing business with you or completing a task that you need to complete. Right. So, uh, so you know, it's, it's been, I will say that uh, um, my position itself, it's pretty unique because there's not a lot of people that kind of have been successful. And I don't want to use the word success because I, I consider myself successful. That's not what I'm saying. I think that trying to balance both mm-hmm. and bringing them together that's powerful yeah you know because knowing how to how to talk to the people on the left and how to talk to people on the right and making everybody come together that's that they don't teach at school yeah mm-hmm. i'm uh, telling you definitely. they don't yeah. <laughs> they don't told us about you know your past how you started in my life and kind of like where it led you to be now uh for somebody that's never been to hq uh in ac how would you explain it to somebody, and how does it differentiate from other clubs that people may have been to? So obviously, it's it's um, uh, I'm I'm partial because I work there, but I've always had the good fortune, uh, uh, also had the good fortune to work um, at the pool at Harris for years. Um, you know, Premier, although I've never worked there, it's an amazing venue. They spent fourteen million dollars when they built it when they did renovation from Mix. Um, so I think. Every room has has its own thing, right? Uh, I think what what's special about HQ, the nightclub, is that it's it's not your typical club. You know, first of all, it's you know it's got its own tower uh, at Ocean, and it's not ground level. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's up. Uh, I mean, it's elevated. It's it's on the third and fourth floor, but I mean that's there's probably like another another five or six floors from the ground. So, <clears throat> and it's not your typical rectangle. Or square, it's it's like a like a kidney shaped uh, sort of venue, but it's glass. So the nightclub is all glass. Yeah, yeah. And you know you're looking at the ocean, so you're looking at the Atlantic Ocean, which is you know similar to the pool. When you walk into the pool, it's like oh my god, it's like the Disney effect. It's a glass <laughs> dome. It's yeah, a ninety foot glass yeah. dome. With palm trees and and a, and a massive pool, and it's mm-hmm. always eighty two degrees. Yeah, <laughs> that's very unique, yeah. right? That's not your typical nightclub, and you know that's one thing that I think uh, Harris uh, and the pool have capitalized on over the years that it's not your typical dark nightclub, right? Yeah, right. Different. So, I think one of the things, one of the one of the many ingredients that makes HQ special, uh, ultimately, the people make it special. Uh, um, and, and when I mean the people, I mean two things because there's, there's the team that operates it, right? The, the team that I'm very fortunate to work with, um, because, you know, they execute, 
from the time you pull up to, you know, to the door, mm -hmm. to your experience being, you know, coming up the elevator, to when you're seated, to when you're greeted, to when you get a drink. So it's, it's you know, the whole experience um, from, from the service aspect, but then the production too. And I think HQ is big enough that you can have a great party, but it's small enough that's intimate. You know, if right. you, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, I remember uh, when I was at the pool, at the pool, if you have 900 people, it looks like, oof. Yeah. Oh, it looks a little light tonight because it's such a massive space. Yeah. And it's easy for people to get lost because mm -hmm. it's, you know, you have palm trees and you have, you know, you have different areas where people can go get drinks. So it's just, you know, it's wonderful when you have 2,000, 2,500 people. But when you have six, 700 people, which would pack most any club yes. in Atlantic City. Some clubs die for that, yeah. Right. So, you know, I'm always very, I'm very real when people make comments about, excuse me, different clubs. I take everything with a grain of salt. Um, you know, one, because I know the rooms and I know the market and I know this is a brutal business. It's hyper competitive, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I think, you know, when I look at HQ, I think that the club itself is unique. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, what club is made out of glass, you know, that has glass windows looking at an ocean, mm. uh, probably not that many of them. Yeah. Uh, it's elevated. It's not ground level. Um, and, um, you know, we do, I think that the experience itself from the DJs to the production, like the big led screen mm -hmm. to all the special effects and how everything is coordinated. I think that does separate, uh, separates us from a lot of the competition in Atlantic city. Not that they don't have those bells and whistles, but I think it's the team itself. We have a team that was handpicked, that understands the culture, that understands the task, and everybody takes pride in it. And if you do that in any business, you get everybody to believe in what you're doing, you're unstoppable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I haven't been in a nightclub, but it does look like you very, haven't been to HQ. Now, yeah, not the nightclub. I've been in a day club when you I was, Steve Aoki was there. Should we take him? Should we show them a night? You guys should, <laughs> yes, definitely. Next, next time I have a night off, 100%. But uh, I've been at a day club, and that's just a whole different experience in itself. Yeah. Uh, when Steve Aoki was there. That that's was a monster, man. Absolutely insane. Yeah. When, when that nightclub and the beach club, it, it hits a certain point that it just roars. It takes uh, it takes on a um, its own life. Yeah. You know, and all you can do is just kind of step back and just kind of watch it. And I've done that many times where you just like... Um, a lot of how I personally, how I get my, my personal satisfaction from being in the business, it's things like that. It's things that, that you work, you know, a lot of times I'm walking down the, you know, in the back, uh, um, down the hallway or whatever in the back of the house and I'll, and I'll get somebody to say, man, I wish I had your job. <laughs> and, and it's because they don't see what goes on behind the scenes. All they see is just a packed club, music, you know, liquor. Girls, a good yeah. time. Good right? yeah. Um, but they don't understand that that's actually the easy part. Right. That's just operational. That's just people doing their job, right? That's execution. The real work happens behind the scenes, mm -hmm. so that happens. And sometimes you can make all of this stuff happen back here to put it here, but if you don't have the right team out here, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, or it happens, but it's not as successful. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of, to me, I work every day. My phone is always on. doesn't matter whether I'm on vacation. I mean, I've gone overseas where you won't get an out-of-office from me because this is what I do. 
You know, obviously there's times where like, okay, I'm not picking up the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have that mindset, I think that that's, that's how you become successful. And I've also learned that for me personally, growth only happens when you push yourself outside of your comfort zone. You, because you get, you know, you get complacent. You show up, you do the same thing every day. And it's like, okay, then there's no, you're not challenging yourself. Yes, yes, right. But when somebody gives you a shove and pushes you out of your lane, you know, to, to do something different. Again, I go back to what I used to say, surround yourself with people that challenge you. Surround yourself with, with friends that, that will call you out on BS and also give you a pat on the back. Mm-hmm. Those are the people you need around you no matter what you do, no matter what business, because that, that's, it's going to keep you sharp. For me, you know, I mean, I, I don't feel any different than when I was 18, mentally. Yeah. I'm just like, this is what I love. This is what I do. This is what I was born for. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you have that mentality, then you overcome challenges. Um, if you think that something's going to be a problem, it'll become a problem. Yeah. Trust me. So. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And yeah, you definitely, obviously, you started in Boston and you went to Philly, AC. I'm sure you have a million stories to tell. But I've been asking, <laughs> been asking everybody that we've had on, what is the most like unusual, weirdest gig or just like nightlife experience that you've encountered? If you can name one. Oh boy, uh, you know, I mean, I can't say that. Look, there's always. You know, there's always different things that happen. I mean, I, I, I one of the reasons why I never really liked, um, uh, I was always wary of using uh, a laptop to uh, to DJ because mm-hmm. it's electronic, right? I mean, like a turntable, the Technique 1200s, you know, you could buy it brand new, turn it on, beat it up for 30 years, and it's going to continue it's to work. Go, yeah. um, things have become more technologically advanced, so we rely on technology. I was, I went to do a gig in Philly. Uh, and I brought uh, my laptop, set it up, tested everything, and uh, I was the headliner. And everything worked. When I went back to when it was my turn, yeah. my computer died. My computer uh, was just the, the, the screen was black. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, a, a nightmare. Sweet, yeah. It, it just, <laughs> What'd you do? Well, you drop 10 and punt. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, obviously, the guy that, uh, that, that was opening for me, I just obviously, he, uh, he had his computer. And I just, he was gracious enough to, to uh, you know, uh, let me use his computer. Mm-hmm. But it was just, uh, that was, um, you know, that was that was a tough one. Over the years, you know, you always have different things. I mean, you know, the, I think it was 2019, uh, we had at the Beach Club, we had uh, Oscar G playing. And, you know, party was rocking. All of a sudden, like... You just see this black cloud, right? That came up. It, it, it looked like the like the Death Star, right? <laughs> it just kind of came up from where, like, uh, you know, down the shore. And once it caught up to, like, uh, you know, we were at the beach, it just like stopped, <laughs> and it just let loose. Oh my it gosh. just let loose, and it was like it was almost like a mini hurricane, <laughs> because so people obviously we got to tell people get out yeah. get out of the water because if it starts lightning lightning, and, lightning yeah, yeah. and you know people are having a great time they're they're you know they're drinking. drinking partying but when the wind kicked in and you have furniture being basically toppled oh, over mike so imagine everybody you're running an operation people have their alcohol mm-hmm. uh, at the tables they have food open checks right mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. people are scattering right so now everybody ran into the casino and just instantly lined up in front of the nightclub 
right? Because mm-hmm. uh, they were thinking, okay, we're going inside. Uh-huh. So, so we tried to salvage as much as we could. Now imagine the nightclub is not as big as the beach club, mm-hmm. okay? So, we, so you have a ton of people that are outside trying to get into the club. The club is not set up until right. nighttime. Yeah. yeah, That was probably one of the most challenging days professionally because you have to hold your composure. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, I mean, everybody's looking at me. What do we do, right? So first is safety. You know, make sure everybody's safe, staff inside. You know, we announce on the microphone inside, get indoors, right? And then... Obviously, we had to try to take whatever we could salvage. So if you guys had come in, you had a table and you have four bottles at your table, mm-hmm. you know, we try to bring those bottles in mm-hmm. to set you up inside. It was incredibly challenging because there was more people that we could fit inside the nightclub. Uh, but in my opinion, look, what we did is we made it right. We just, whoever came in, we set them up. If they if their bottles had fallen because of the wind or whatever, we gave them new bottles and uh, everybody, we salvaged something that could have been really bad. Yeah. If, we yeah, hadn't bet, opened, yeah. if we hadn't opened the nightclub, uh, you know, but again, I go back to saying that you have to have the right team because the team sprung into action and it was like, nobody, yeah, right. we got to do it. Just mm-hmm. get it done mm-hmm. and we'll figure it out later. later. And uh, that was, I've had a few dicey, uh, <laughs> dicey things. DJ, not so much. I mean, DJ, sometimes, you know, you're disappointed. Um, uh, in yourself, maybe from a uh, uh, um, artistic standpoint, that you could have done better as a DJ, or a certain event that you went to, maybe was it was not uh, as well attended as you had thought. Uh, but if you love what you do, you make the most of it. So yeah. I, I don't have any horror stories as a DJ besides my laptop dying. Um, That's a the, horror. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that is. That is I, so now it's you know I have a backup to a backup to a backup. Right. I, mean, I have yeah. USB. I don't I don't use laptops anymore. <laughs> Um, I have uh, multiple USBs. I have all my music on the cloud. So even mm-hmm. if I lose that, I can go to the cloud and download stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, okay. So we actually, let's transition a little bit. We uh, started doing Instagram polls uh, to kind of get interactive with the listeners for the podcast. Uh, and I want to get your opinion on them too. Uh, first thing we did was Vodka versus Tequila. Uh, Vodka won 53% of the votes. Where do you stand on that? So... Um, it's funny because obviously as an operator, uh, you know, when it comes to nightclubs and I mean, so my personal opinion, I, when I was much younger, <clears throat> I, uh, I drank a lot of, um, Cuervo one day, bad idea, yeah. <laughs> bad idea. I bet, yeah. But back then, I mean, tequila was just basically it, right? That, that's, that's basically what you had and ooh, uh, it was a horrible experience. So I said, <laughs> I'm never drinking tequila again. Um, and I didn't drink tequila until Eric Murillo, God rest his soul, came uh, in 2018. He came to play at a, at the beach club. And on his rider, it was like, Classe Azul. And I'm like, what the hell is Classe Azul? <laughs> right? Never heard of it. Yeah. And his manager, Javier, uh, who's calling me, you have the bottle, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> so luckily, um, the casino had the bottle. We got it. He come down, and Eric goes, come on, man, let's do a shot. And I'm like, I don't drink tequila, dude. No, 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 no. You have to have tequila. So his his cousin, Javier, which was also his manager, he basically, because obviously you guys are familiar with the bottle, right? Yeah. 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 So he would people would steal the bottle because it's of just how the bottle looks. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. he would literally um, take a liter bottle of Fiji, empty it, and pour the contents of the Classe into the Fiji and wow. keep it in his back pocket. So 
we do a shot and I'm like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> so that kind of like started like, okay, well maybe I should start going out with tequila again and dump mm-hmm. the current girlfriend, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, right, right. But so, um, I'm more of a tequila guy now mm-hmm. uh, than, you know, than vodka. Not that I dislike vodka, but vodka, I mean, look, any product that's good, you can drink just chilled by itself. You don't mm-hmm. need anything. Um, this great vodka that you just chill it and it, you just sip it. You right, know? right. Uh, but it's funny enough that in, in bottle service, in the business, vodka reigned. Yeah. Vodka was at the top. Not, not anymore. Hmm. Tequila. Yeah, tequila. a lot of my friends like tequila. I'm, I'm, I'm always a vodka guy. Yeah, but look, always. at the end of the day, it's like, I'm it's, it's, it's whatever you enjoy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's whatever, you know, um, it's whatever you enjoy, whether it's just having a drink by yourself or when you're out socially, it's whatever makes you feel happy and whatever does it for you, you know. But mm-hmm. I, I have leaned, uh, I'm more of a, uh, uh, of a tequila guy. Gotcha. I like some yeah. nice, nice reposado, chilled. Mm. Mm. That's right. Not that Frank has any. <laughs> ne- ne- next time <laughs> you're on, we'll make sure right to have now. it. We'll make sure to have it in the fridge. I know when I'm with Frank, we're drinking classic. <laughs> <laughs> so we had another question on the poll of like, uh, does anybody have any questions for us or advice that they want like responses for? And somebody asked, how do you still have a productive day after a long night out or working or drinking? Discipline. You have to get up and just do it. So everybody moves differently. Everybody mm-hmm. works differently. I'm the kind of person that I am, I guess, not, I don't want to say self-motivated. But if I have something to do, it's getting done. Um, I, it's weird. Like, um, if I have to set, if I have to wake up early, right, I, I, I set my alarm, I normally, mentally, I wake up before my alarm goes off. Because my mind, I've trained my mind to this is what we have to do, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's getting done. So to me, in anything in life, whatever you want to do, you can achieve, but you have to be disciplined. And you have to self-govern yourself. You are your own boss. Nobody can manage you. Nobody can do anything if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. But you have to hel- uh, hold yourself accountable. And if you know, hey, I have an important day tomorrow, then maybe don't drink tonight. Yeah. Right? It's just that accountability. Hold yourself accountable. Now, it's great in theory, and you know, I, I trust me. I've done, I've done both. I've done stuff that was like very disciplined, and I've done stuff where I, the job still always gets done. But I've done plenty of times where I, I was on no sleep or very little sleep, mm-hmm. and I was dragging ass. But <laughs> you make a commitment, you see, you see that through. Right. So it's it's discipline. Yeah. I guess I need some of that because um, if <laughs> I too. go out the night before, I'm like, I'm sleeping we're, in. Don't call me. We're young. We're still learning. Uh-huh. I don't know what it's like <laughs> to sleep eight hours. I don't. <laughs> I think I slept 12 hours last night. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think I would explode. That's nice. Like, what? Nice night of sleep. <laughs> what was the next one, KP? Um, I need advice. I work in a club in Philly, and I got offered to work down the shore this summer. How do I quit the Philly one without burning bridges in case I want to return in the summer? So it's a great question because I deal with that a lot, right? Mm-hmm. HQ, because of its popularity, attracts a lot of people to work there. So my, um, you know, my advice would be to think long term, right? Um, if this is something that you're just, hey, I'm just passing by, mm-hmm. and this is not going to be my career, uh, I'm going to be done in a year or whatever it is, um, then 
chances are that you probably want to go for the money. A lot mm -hmm. of people do that in the business, no matter what, no matter what, because you always have, in my opinion, be a good person, always be a good human being, and always put yourself in somebody else's shoes, meaning that, you know, reverse roles. Let's say that that, that person was a bottle server, okay? Uh, and she's thinking, okay, well, I got a, a job offer down the shore. It's popular. I'm going to make more money. Okay. Well, the shore is three months. Okay. So um, you, you have to think, if I don't think like the server, think like the manager or the owner of the venue, mm -hmm. right? That person is depending on you. Now, if you want to leave because you feel that that's a better decision for you personally and financially, then that's what you should do. But you should handle it correctly at, at the very least, definitely two weeks' notice, have a conversation with that person and say, look, this is how I feel. You know, again, at the end of the day, it's about you. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not about what anybody else is going to think because the manager may, may tell you, go pound sand. I can't believe you're doing this. <laughs> to me, I gave right. you a job. They're going to give you the guilt trip because they're being selfish. Mm -hmm. The same token, that manager gave you a job when you needed it, yeah. right? So now don't be selfish. So Make a decision. If the decision is that you want to do that, then own it, make it, but behave accordingly. Because guess what? It was a saying that I said for many, many, many years. Be nice to everybody on your way up because you're going to meet them all on the way down. Yeah. What happens is that person now could be the GM two years down the road at the venue that you want a job in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're going to run into that same person. And if you handle things correctly with that person... You're always going to have an open door. But if you didn't handle things correctly, they're probably going to say, hey, I remember when you, when you left me high and dry. Mm -hmm. So don't chase money. Don't go to a job because they're giving you more money. Um, make the decisions based on where you are, you know, professionally, emotionally, uh, and sometimes financially. But... Don't don't leave a job that you're happy at to go make more money somewhere else because I know plenty of those people that left HQ that have yeah. regretted it. Yeah. You know, it's not just about the money. It's working with a team of people that respect you, that you are happy in the morning when you're getting dressed to go to work. Say, oh, my God, thank God I have that to go to. Mm -hmm. right. So it's not just money. Yeah, no, I definitely learned, like, in nightlife, people work their way up. And I always try to make it a point. Like wherever I'm DJing at, introduce myself to the bartenders or the managers, and you know, make sure I have a good impression. They remember who I am, mm -hmm. and remember that I was respectful. And it's a common you know, courtesy, man. It's common yeah. courtesy. I mean, it's 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 you know, um, people won't respect you because of your title. You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, leadership is not a title. That's leadership is a choice. Um, so it's it's if you behave accordingly, and and you respect other people, you know. Um, that's very impactful. You yeah. know, I, I, anytime anybody pays me a compliment at a meeting or somewhere in the building or outside of the building about HQ, I accept it graciously, <clears throat> but that's a compliment that's paid to my team because I, everything that we've been able to accomplish to this day, it's not because I'm a better operator. I'm smarter than anybody else. Just because I lead a certain way that impacts and attracts people to come and work together. And the people that don't, yeah. I coach them out yeah. because I don't want negative people around me. I want people that are dedicated, hardworking, that want to be successful, that take pride in what they do and want to be the best at it. Right. And then we feed off of each other. Because let me tell you, 
during the summer when we're going back to back and there's like two hours in between, you, you know, if you know that you have 50 other people doing it with you, it gets a lot easier to do because mm-hmm. everybody's, we're all dragging, but we're all holding each other up. In a positive mood. That's it. And it's like, so to me, yeah. it's it's like anybody that's worked with me or that knows me, I mean, this is, this is who I am. I'm yeah. always joking around. I'm always, um, you know, try to have fun and... Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of serious things that also pertain to my job, but it's how you approach it. It's what I said earlier. If you think it's going to be a problem, it'll turn into a problem. Mm-hmm. But we've been able to kind of forge a really good, solid team that all have the same goal. Yeah, they want to be successful, but, you know, it wouldn't it be great if he can work someplace that you're valued, respected, you have fun, and you make money? Yeah. Man, that's the lottery right there. Yeah. That's yeah. the lottery. And uh, speaking of the summer, I know we're – Quickly entering summer. Uh, do you guys have any exciting announcements or events coming up? That I was thinking of starting to book some talent right after this. See, <laughs> if, I, see if I can fill the summer. My schedule's open. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, we started to work on summer 2023, mm-hmm. summer 2022. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that, one of the luxuries that, that well, I, I shouldn't say luxuries. We're, you know, ocean is one property. Right, it's a standalone property. It's not MGM. It's not Hard Rock mm-hmm. that own multitude of uh, you know multitude of properties and have assets everywhere. We're one property, so um, you know we. I treat the venues that I manage like they're my own business. Um, you know, I I can't lose money, yeah. right? Because or else I wouldn't be in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, I understand that a lot of these big. Um, operators, you know, these conglomerates, they have a lot of money. So, um, you know, for us, it's how do we get there first? How do we do a better job than everybody else? For us, besides profitability, you know, at the top sits hospitality. For me personally as an operator, because if you don't nail the hospitality, and what I mean by that, if you don't treat your guests right, Mm -hmm. then forget the money. Mm -hmm. The money won't be there. So I focus and I, the, the, I, I train the staff to focus on service. If you focus on service and if you focus on servicing that guest that made a choice to come to your venue rather than mine, right, we owe them something. What do we owe them? An experience. An experience that's positive so when they leave, they become your cheerleaders, yeah. right? And they tell their friends and they're calling you to come back next week. Yeah. If you do that, Money is a byproduct of that. But if you focus on money without the service, you'll never be successful. Mm-hmm. You may get lucky, but you'll never be successful. So for us, it's just about creating, you know, we, we, we're very analytical when it comes to bookings, how we book, when we book, and who we book against, what's happening in New York, what's happening in D.C., what could be happening in Las Vegas, you know, because the talent that we attract it's global. It's not regional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yes, we have amazing DJs, uh, you know, that, that play for us, like, you know, like a Rick Wonder, uh, you know, uh, like a Shortcuts, DJ Clutch, right? Amazing, skilled guys that are local and are incredible DJs, right? Uh, but then when we do the beach club and we do, uh, uh, like, you know, Saturday at the nightclub, we try to attract the bigger global type of act. Mm-hmm. Those guys can go anywhere. Yeah, those guys. You know, I I say it all the time. You know, we're not we're not just um, bidding against MGM uh, or Harris. 
or Hard Rock, we're bidding against the entire planet mm -hmm. because, you know, Tiesto can play in Dubai, he can play in Atlantic City, he can play in Vegas, yeah. he can play in Ibiza. Yeah. So the fact that we're able to get, a, you know, someone like Tiesto twice in three months, I try to really drive that home to the staff. It's like, think about the severity and the magnitude of that. You know how mm -hmm. many people want to have that guy in their venue? Mm -hmm. yeah. And the fact that he's saying, okay, I'll go there. So once once that happens, then we owe, uh, you know, we owe a great experience to everybody, not just from the DJ and his team, but also to everybody that buys a ticket and that supports the event. That's true. I guess I never really thought of it like that. Like that he could really go anywhere and he's coming to you guys twice in three months. There's, I mean, you think about, uh, you think about some of the people we have. Tiesto, Aoki, Above and Beyond, James Hype, Diplo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, these guys can play anywhere in the world that they want. Anywhere. So, uh, you know, the fact that they're saying, okay, we'll give you a date. I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's humbling. But now, as I say it all the time, okay, we got the talent. Now we really got to put up the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. It's like when you go to your boss and you say, hey, I want to raise. Because look at what I've done. And so I'm justifying the raise. And when somebody gives you a raise, typically with that comes more responsibility, right? Yeah. So it's not just this. Oh, great. I'm getting the same money. I'm getting more money to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Anytime you move up a click, it's more responsibility. More money, but more responsibility. Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> um. You know, when you look at it like that, I mean, I go back to, you know, mindset. It's it's all in the way that you analyze and you look at things. Um, so I, I I always try to look at it from somebody else's perspective, you know, uh, and because I, I think that gives you a better understanding of how you need to make that decision, you know, so. Yeah, well, listen, thank you so much for coming on, Manny. I definitely learned a lot i'm sure kp you, yeah, you did, too. I did too yeah it was like really interesting like i said earlier just to see and hear from somebody that has been on really like every single <clears throat> aspect of nightlife mm -hmm. and still growing someday yeah. i, I want to be a dancer on frank's yeah, <laughs> you know get into, the, get into that little tutu <laughs> If you, could, pay, if you could dream it, you could do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and our next guest is going to be announced in the next few days. And see you guys next week. Thanks. Thank you yeah. for having me. No problem. <laughs>